Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Our Father God, all of life, all of our existence and experience, Lord, we know is to be used for your glory. So I pray this morning that you would comfort us if we think that there has been a part that has not brought you glory. Because you will bring yourself glory and you will bring us good even in moments of discipline, even in moments of chaos, even in moments of suffering. You remain good, good to your children, withholding no good thing. So comfort us with that comfort, the comfort of the gospel. Lord, and be merciful and gracious to us in this hour that we would hear from you, that our hearts would be open, laid bare, and that our minds would know and understand the things that you are speaking to us and how you seek to use that for our Christ-likeness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grow in us and bestow upon us and cement in our hearts a burning desire to know you, uh, to open your word every day, to hear from you. Lord, to be a people that acknowledges every morning that we need you. And that every small encounter, every small detail of our life can bring you glory and can bring us good by knowing how you care about the details. Lord, we are seeking now in this moment to be edified by your word, to be made holy, and to know and discern what your will is. And so we ask, humbly ask that you would bestow that upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are looking at verses 16 and 17. This is kind of unique in Paul's letters. There's two benedictions in this letter. Benediction usually comes at the end of Paul's letters where he is expressing um, kind of a form of prayer or pronouncement of what he hopes the Lord will do for the people, what he'll bring to the people, what he'll keep them in, um, what he'll give them. And this is one of two in this letter. As we've made our way through chapter 2, we have one more chapter left in which he's going to ask for prayer and he's going to admonish the idol. But in chapter 2, right, we've been looking at, at end things. This man of lawlessness is coming in the power of Satan. What he's going to do, how that's going to work, and how God's people are to be comforted even in that time. And how we are to endure. And we looked a lot about the truth and how... The truth means everything for us. And I, I keep repeating this this week because it is foundational and monumentally simple 
to our faith, but Alistair Begg said, um, when I don't feel God's presence, I trust his word. And I actually might even correct Alistair, which is not my place to do, but I would, I would say that is where I know his presence. That is where I know that he promises to abide. That is, that is how I even know that God desires to dwell with me or you. And the links that he's gone to to dwell with his people. And so when Paul's getting ready to pronounce this benediction, he's basically asking that God would establish comfort himself, these people, so that as they experience the suffering, as they have to endure uh, persecution, as they have to live in a place that is constantly trying to disrupt and distort the gospel, they are cemented in what is true by him. By him. And the main thing that I think benedictions do, if we stop and think about it, is they bring that reality to bear on us. That God is personal. He's not distant. We don't interact with him through a mere human mediator. We interact with him in his son. In the temple actually realized and draped in flesh and opened up for his people to come in and be cleansed and be with him. You know, one thing that I think sadly uh, happened to a generation of Christians was that in the shepherding that took place over them, a lot of times maybe you weren't brought into the heart of God for sinners. And I've heard that from you. That's why I say that. That, that, that the heart of God to press into the sinner and to, to meet him or her where she is and to care for him or her where she is and, and to not discard them because they've stumbled along the way. Some of you missed that for a time. And that made you feel like God was far off. And as Justin taught us in Sunday school, it made you think that maybe God saved you at one point in time and cleaned your slate, but then left you to kind of start over on your own. That's not what he did. And so this morning I want to press into that some more, just to pick apart these phrases that that Paul is uttering to them, that they would be uttered to us in the spirit that we would know who is with us, who is doing these things, who we can count on. Verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. First thing I want to look at is in verse 16 where he says, May the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul will often speak of Christ, will often speak of the Lord, will often speak of the Lord Jesus, will often speak of Jesus Christ, but when he puts those 
three titles of Jesus together that means something. He's, a, he's encompassing for them in their minds all of who we know Jesus to be. To be master, to be king of kings and lord of lords, to be the one who reigns supreme, to where all our devotion goes to and all of our obedience goes to. That's, that's the Lord and Jesus, the one who was promised to save, that he took on humanity that he draped himself in flesh and that he went before us to place himself on the altar as a pure and acceptable sacrifice to God once and for all for the sins of his people. And Christ, right, the Messiah, the promised one, has come. That God has made good on what he desired for his people from the beginning. He desired to dwell with them and he's going to dwell with them in purity and glory and so he himself is going to go win that for them he himself is as the righteous one is going to make a congregation of the righteous and paul's putting that all together as he's applying these hopes for them and he's saying that one him we're not going to mistake who we're talking about we're we're talking about the lord jesus christ and then he uses this uh third person personal pronoun maybe that's right i don't know uh himself Himself, may He interact with you in these distinct ways. It draws my mind to uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Most of you know it well, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In himself, in meditating on who he is and all of these offices and names and titles, meditating on the fact that he himself knows your name, calls your name. He even tells us in John 10 that he knows his sheep. He calls them by name and they respond to his voice because he is their, what? good shepherd himself one of the most unique and wonderful things about the faith the truth is that god and it's often said this way condescends to interact with you to deal with you i can use you in the singular and you in the plural he is engaging us. He is he's even asking us to constantly and consistently, according to Philippians 4, engage him. And you can even <coughs> go to, to 1 Peter and see that he, he asks us to cast our anxieties on him, our burdens on him. Why? Because he himself cares for us. He himself. You know, uh, we live in a, kind of a celebrity-dominated culture, right? And we're blown away by who so-and-so knows or has met, and we think that's impressive. You know, oh, yeah, uh, I met Garth Brooks one time, or I saw uh, whoever, Michael Jackson, cross the street one time. Man, that, that's nothing. That is nothing. 
You know, our dear brother Jeff Parks, um, he helped me one time. He, Jeff is a modern-day Puritan, I would say. Je- Jeff is, is not afraid to encounter anyone. Jeff has sat down with, with men who you've heard on the radio and have read their books in a very unassuming way. And I said, I said, how do you do that? How do you approach those situations and those type of people in these lofty positions and who have these big names? And, and he said that one time it was explained to him that there are no great men. There's only God doing great things through men. So we're all on a, on a level playing field. And so to get all hyped up and bent out of shape about someone with some sort of celebrity status is kind of absurd to Christians. Why? Because we know God. I mean, think about it. We get, uh, we get uh, amazed and uh, obsessed with, with people who, who are good at playing a child's game and can throw a ball really well and all this sort of stuff. Can they speak the universe into existence? Do they care about what you're dealing with this week? Do they know how to work all things together for good, your good, and their glory? Do they know how to share their glory with you? Can they? No. We, we have to always uh, acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the one that reigns supreme on the throne, and yes, you are invited to speak with him, to deal with him, to listen to him, to be cared for and carried by him. Therefore, who are we going to be devoted to? I hope we're going to be devoted to him. And Paul is utilizing that. He is calling asking, pronouncing that it be him who's present and God our Father. And we know, right, through the Gospels that that people wanted to kill Jesus because he places himself on the same plane as God the Father, as Yahweh. And that's blasphemy to them because, right, they, uh, Deuteronomy 6, they had the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and, and they're not understanding the triunity of his oneness, which is really impossible to understand, but that's who he is. And so when Jesus places himself with the Father, they, they can't, that, that doesn't make any sense to them. You know why it doesn't make any sense? Because they forgot the personal promises of God to come to his people in the Old Testament to himself come to his people. They forgot the identity of the Messiah had to be supernatural and supreme. It had to be God himself. If, if, this, if all of this is going to be one for us, if the person that's coming is coming on the clouds with power and glory, if the one that is coming is going to uh, pronounce pardon for our sins, take that on himself and pardon that and cleanse his people, there's only one person that can cleanse, and it's God. Even the law points to that. That only God can cleanse. So, we are speaking about the one God. We have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All that that means. 
and God our Father. Our Father. Jesus invites us in to an intimacy with Him as Father that had never been known or really thought of in ancient Israel. He invites us to cry, Abba, Father. Personally, convictionally, speaking to Him, the one who's unapproachable, who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who, who is holy uh, perfectly and, and righteous and eternal, and you're invited to approach Him as your dad, as your father, to receive from Him what a good father uh, wants to give to you, his children, good things. You, you're invited behind the curtain. You're, you're invited to be known as his children. And children have a certain access to their parents, right? That other people don't have an intimate access, sometimes too intimate, where they end up taking your bed over and then you don't have any room to sleep. But they have that access, and that's good. And we desire to give them good things. You have that access to God through Jesus, who brought this to you. So, you know, one of the, one of the amazing things about the gospel, and I think we were getting to this in Sunday school is not just that you're saved, not just that you're pardoned from sin. That's no small thing at all. It's huge. Without that, there is no gospel. But through that, you're invited into the presence of God. Um, you know, speaking of the queen who just passed this week. Wouldn't it be a special privilege to be invited to Buckingham Palace and to meet with her? It would be. But it would be nothing of all the grandeur and all the history and all of that that, that she dwelt in. It, it is nothing to being, uh, compared to being invited into the glory of God as your father. Because if you were invited to her place of residence, you're still going to relate to her as queen, and there's no intimacy, there's no family relationship there. But when you're invited into, into God's presence, you're invited into this eternal glory and into this eternal presence to relate to Him in a familial way. I think what Paul does with his benedictions is after he's given instruction, after he's given details and correction... He reminds them who they are and what they have access to. And think about the heaviness of what he just dealt with here, the man of lawlessness in this crazy, awful time where the power of Satan is going to kind of be turned loose and it's going to indwell in this lawless man and it's just going to be, the, the world is going to be rampant with lawlessness and wicked deception. So it's fitting that he feels that he has to offer this benediction now. Because they're going to be called to stand firm. They've been called to stand firm in verse 15. 
And one of the most um, amazing ways that that's done in our lives is by remembering who we have access to, who our Father is. Think about it. If you're facing a world that is run by this man of lawlessness, if the church is, uh, the walls are closing in by the, the wickedness that is, that is surrounding it in this foreign land, where's your comfort? Is it in the fortification of your walls? Is it in the connections of people who can kind of ease that? Or is it fully and alone in God as your Father who has all resources and who has all sovereignty uh, to do anything at any time that He so pleases? Is your comfort in your Father who wicked people are going to have to answer to? That's one way, that's how we encounter being wronged, really. I mean, do we have a father who looks out for his children? Who will repay the wicked for what they've done to his church? We do. So you derive comfort and peace knowing that he he is far better at vengeance than I am. But he's also far better at grace and mercy. He's rich in it, Ephesians 2 says. So, whatever has happened to you, God can fix that, heal that, restore that, bring justice to that or holiness to that in a way that you never could. So, what do you do? You just cry out to him, right? He's our Father. Jesus, God the Father, God, who what? Loved us. If you look through Paul's letters, Peter, notice that when they talk about the love of God, a lot of times it's in the past tense. And that is not to signal to us that that it happened at one point in time and that it doesn't happen again. No, in fact, Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love... In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He loved you before the foundation of the world. A love that was effective in in reconciling you to himself before the foundation of the world. That he created you knowing how to reconcile you to himself. He created you knowing that his love would flow unhindered to you through the cross of his son. He loved you before he even created you. And what Paul is communicating to us is that 
may you continue to know that his love is still flowing. <clears throat> I've told you before that I got to uh, go to a conference on Romans 8. The whole conference was on Romans 8 about seven or eight years ago now. And, and the great illustration that I can't ever forget is that when you get to the end of Romans 8, right, it's, it's talking about like nakedness and sword and peril and all these things that could separate you from the love of God and Christ Jesus, but they don't, and you become more than conquerors through those things. John Piper illustrated that by saying, imagine a, a, just a, a rushing, flowing river. And if any of you have ever been whitewater rafting or anything, this is easy for you to imagine. And, and, and in that river, the, the nakedness and the sword and the peril and the famine and the persecution represents those <coughs> rocks that kind of stick up and cause rapids or rough spots, right? But the river keeps flowing. It moves kind of here and there and directs you. But those things don't dam up the river. The river keeps flowing. That's, that's God's love. That it's unending. It's rushing in at all times to us. And you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, he initiated meeting the needs out of love for his people, his bride, the church. He provided for. He created your holiness, your purity of his people. He made the way. He is the way. And then, of course, 1 John 4.10, often called the love chapter besides 1 Corinthians 13. John's calling people here to love one another. Why? For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does, or does not love does not know God because God is love. In this love, God, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love. You know, I had this <clears throat> meditation come to mind the other day I, I don't, it, it breaks my heart for people that don't know God because then they don't know love. And while there's a common grace that, that is bestowed upon all humans to have the ability to be loving to some degree or gracious to some degree or to seek the good of others to some degree, until you know the love of God that was made manifest to us in Jesus Christ being offered as propitiation for our sins, as a, as a payment to appease his wrath for our sins, unless you know that love, you don't really, uh, you aren't really able to love in the, in the truest sense of the word. So there's whole households in this country that are devoid of a, of a, of a life-changing, uh, eternal transforming love. Of a, of, a, of a love that has the power to reconcile and to overcome 
the sins and the failures that all our relationships experience. So praise God if He has brought that love into your heart. Now you begin to know and to be able to love. That was one of the first realities to me when I became a Christian. Is I didn't know how to love people. Still trying to figure it out. But at least I know what it is. I know what it is. I know where it comes from. I know how powerful it is. I know what it's really about. And it's God who is that love. Now, he loved us. He did this. We know this by him. That's what he is. And gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Good hope through grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His grace, his unmerited favor, his love brought us good hope. If Paul is using the word good in connection with God, don't just think of that the way we use good. Like, how was that movie? Yeah, it was good. How was that meal? It was good. No. Perfectly good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's calling people to recognize what good is. There's no one good except the Father, except God. So if you're calling me good, do you know who I am? Do you know where goodness comes from? Do you know what goodness is? Good hope, perfect hope, amazing hope through unmerited favor that he showed us in loving us from before the foundation of the world. This is gospel meditation this morning. This is pulling these words out that have got lost in our Christianese so that we can remind ourselves of the gospel and be able to speak the gospel to each other. So that we have uh, in our mind a vocabulary that means something that means something that these words carry with them a power and a weight and that we don't throw them around you know one thing that i love uh, spurgeon's talked about a lot right especially from this pulpit in this church and, and lots of places now there's the spurgeon revival that's happened the past 10 years but one thing i love about spurgeon that great English preacher in the 19th century, um, his words, and, and all the Puritans really going back to the 1600s and even before that into the 1500s, uh, words carried weight. They didn't just talk to talk, right? I had to remind one of my boys last night, like, you're just talking. Like, just. We want to say things and mean them. Every single word, carefully chosen, you will answer for those words. And we want to be a people who say things that mean things to people. You know, one thing I love about my wife is uh, she always talks about having a hard time with small talk. And I always, I always try and comfort her. I say, you know why that is? I said, you... you 
were the most intimidating woman I ever met when I met you. Because your words and actions had substance. And they meant something. And there was no playing around. There, there was no uh, taking things for granted. No, you say what you mean. And you mean what you say. And we need to be those type of people that when we say what Paul's saying, he's not just offering niceties to them so that they can you know, be dismissed from this thought and you know, move on. No, it, it is a helpful reminder of the gospel and what these words are. What these words mean. And he wants them to be eternally comforted in the hope they have through grace. That means both now and forever. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We derive comfort from the Lord, Matthew 5, 4, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. Yeah. By who? The Lord himself. Paul knows that. He's asking, establishing that the Lord is going to be the one to comfort eternally, both now and forever, your hearts, and to do what? Establish them in every good work and word. Another word on comfort here, 2 Corinthians 1.4. Let me find my way there. 2 Corinthians 1.4, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by who? God. By God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. <laughs> he himself will comfort you. There is no greater comfort. None. That is how Christians endure suffering. Because God comforts them. It is not getting the news that, okay, the cancer's gone, which is amazing. We want that. It's not getting the news that uh, your bank account is full. It's not getting the news that... Your kids are now in line with your teaching. It's, it's knowing who God is and his love for you and how that will work out eternally for all good and all glory. If we know God, then in our discouragement and in our discomfort, he's the one we cry out to, knowing that he cares about that and he will comfort. Faith, faith is this, folks, knowing that when you cry out to your father, he will do the things that he's promised to do. One of those is to comfort. And so when you pray, you can have this faith enduring um, promise that he will answer that. That's a prayer of faith. Knowing that that's going to be answered. Because he is your father through Jesus Christ who loves you. 
Not to mention, Paul's using the word eternal here. You, you, the eternal perspective of dwelling with him in, in this glory that's incomprehensible, that is free from all heartache and trouble and drama and tears and sickness and thieves and murderers and adulterers, to be free from all of that, to have that eternal perspective that the day of Jesus Christ is coming, to have that eternal perspective that when we read in verses 1 through 9 about this man of lawlessness and this awful time, that the, at the appearing of Jesus, all of these things will be put to nothing. To have that eternal comfort allows us to know that what we experience now is temporary. Allows Paul to say that I don't consider these present sufferings worth comparing to the glory that's to come. Because they're not. So your, your, your faith is established and comforted and built when you think about what all this is leading to and who is bringing it there. Your dad, your father, and he's good. Lastly, he is hoping, asking that they're established in every good work and word. This is something he also said that he prays for in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 11, that God would make them worthy of his calling and that God himself, right, would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And we understand that what he's asking for here, as he says, establish them, speaking, referring back to our hearts, is that they, from them, would flow forth the good works. That we wouldn't be a people who go through the motions, but that we would be a people who from our hearts are serving, who are giving, who are encouraging, who are doing the work of the gospel. Because if we're going to use the word good in relationship to God, we're talking about the most good or the most perfect good. And what would that be? The gospel, the good news, the best news. If you want to use English for the highest form of the word good. And we want hearts that are established in that. You know, it's, it's one thing, you know, as we're going to look at a list of volunteers and workers for the upcoming year to fulfill these ministries, it's one thing to sign up and say, yes, I'll, I'll do that. We need people who can pick up chairs and move them and stuff like that, right? And, and that may seem like a small thing, like you don't, your heart doesn't have to be in it, you just have to, you know, bear it, do it. I mean, it needs done. It's one thing. But what about if your heart was in it? What about if you knew that every chair you picked up was serving the glory of God to the edification of His church because they have somewhere to sit and they have somewhere to move around as they listen to people like Justin or as they hear the gospel presented or to have a Sunday school teacher speak to them the truth? And they were provided a chair to sit and to meditate on the Word of God by you moving it. So I always reference, some of you have this book on your coffee tables, uh, this, this 
book, um, and I'm forgetting the title right now. Uh, Andy, maybe you can help me. And it's these prayers for every day, um, every moment holy. And it's these prayers, these meditations on the things you do every day, the, the works that you do every day. How can those be made holy? By consecrating them unto the Lord, changing diapers, starting the first fire of the season, raking the leaves. All of this stuff, right, can be good works in the gospel if we want that, if our hearts are in it for that reason. So I try and I fail to, to remember every little thing that I'm doing. If it's not for the gospel, then why am I doing it? If it's not for the benefit of his church and the glory of his name, then why am I doing it? And to realize that that means everything can be done in that way, if your heart is invested in that way. If the Lord himself would establish that in you, then it will be done that way. Guess what? Only he can do that. That's why Paul is pronouncing asking, hoping in this blessing that he would do that. Every good work and word. Don't, don't miss that. Don't pass over that. That word. We just talked about this. This is what we've been talking about. That your words would be established for good from your heart. And they know it wouldn't be careless. I hate speaking careless words the spirit is so good to me and to you that when we speak careless words he comes knocking on the door of our heart and says what what'd you say why why'd you say that we don't use them to throw away we use them to edify to help to encourage and i'll give you one way to guard your tongue and your heart in that Speak the truth of God. Know his word. Speak that. Let everything be seasoned by that. Let, let people be edified when you talk to them by what you say. And may God do that for you in your heart. So, this is Paul's first benediction, <laughs> and then we'll move to chapter 3. But I'll just remind you as we close here to meditate on every word of God as precious. Man does not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how Jesus endured. That's what Jesus hoped in. The promise of glory that is to come. That's a good word, isn't it? So respond to the Lord now, and then we'll stand and sing together.